Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 532 with Roger Dooley. Roger is sharing all about how to reduce friction, the stuff that makes work harder. So you'll learn one, the cardinal rule of friction, two, how to reduce the friction of meetings, and three, how mistrust is often at the root of friction. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, drop on over awesomeatyourjob.com slash F532. Now, here's Roger's story. Roger Dooley is an author and international keynote speaker. His books include Friction, the untapped force that can be your most powerful advantage, and Brainfluence, 100 Ways to Persuade and Convince Consumers with Neuromarketing. He's behind the popular blog, Neuromarketing, as well as a column at Forbes.com. Roger is the founder of Dooley Direct, a consultancy, and co-founded College Confidential, the leading college-bound website. He has an engineering degree from Carnegie Mellon University and an MBA from the University of Tennessee. Big thanks to Roger for taking some time to chat with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. And big thanks to our sponsor, Acorns. Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future. You don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. Acorns recommends an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. NerdWallet.com, whom I love on these sorts of matters, gives Acorns a whopping 4.7 stars and says, quote, if you want to make the most of your spare change, there's no better place to do that than Acorns. Head to acorns.com slash awesome or download the acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today and we got a legal disclaimer here it may not be representative of all clients tier one compensation provided compensation provides an incentive to positively promote acorns view important disclosures at acorns.com awesome investing involves risk including the loss of principal please consider your objectives risk tolerance and acorns as fees before investing acorns advisors llc acorns is an sec registered investment advisor brokerage services are provided to clients of acorns by acorn securities llc member at finra slash sipc for more information visit acorns.com now, here's Roger. Roger, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Well, happy to be here, Pete. Thanks for the invite. Well, I'm so excited to dig into your stuff. And I understand that you currently operate as a behavioral scientist, and but that was not always your, your path. You started training as a chemical engineer. Can you tell us you know, how did you cross over and, and do you see some natural uh, crossover ideas between the two? Sure. And to clarify, uh, I only play in behavioral scientists on the internet. I am not actually a behavioral scientist, although I do write a lot about behavioral science and certainly try and convey uh, some of the ideas from great scientists uh, to business people in ways they can understand. But yeah, I did start off life as an engineer, a chemical engineer, and only did that for a few years. But uh, Pete, I think that being an engineer and training as one kind of gives you a worldview, a way of looking at things that serves you well, regardless of your profession. You really sort of have to deal with reality. You know, engineers can't do stuff based on faith or based on, well, this just seems like a good idea or even sort of argue their way through it. If something, if you're going to build something, it's got to stand up and not fall down. Uh, I was a chemical engineer and, you know, if you're designing plants or reactions or whatever, they they simply have to work. So if you can bring that same kind of thinking to the pursuit of business and other topics, I think it's still valuable. Okay, I'm with you. And so uh, one such concept is friction, and we're going to go all over the place with this, but why don't we kick it off by, by sharing, how do you define friction and why do you say it's the enemy of business? 
Well, the simple definition is uh, any unnecessary effort to perform a task. And the reason it's the enemy of business is because it is everywhere, even where we don't see it. I mean, if, if we saw it and recognized it, there would be a lot less of it. And it's funny because people think they see it. A couple of years ago, I was getting ready to speak at a conference. It was a mastermind, very group of very smart people. And the organizer wanted me to record a promo. He said, okay, I want you to share your best idea in advance. So I said, okay, well, let's, let's, I'll do friction. He goes, nah, nah, nah. Everybody knows about friction. Uh, you got to do something else. So, I mean, I humored him and I did something else, but you know, there is that attitude that we know uh, all about it, uh, that yes, okay. Uh, you have Silicon Valley trying to make things frictionless and so on. But the reality is, uh, in our daily life and daily interactions with businesses, uh, there is a lot of friction, both as a customer and as an employee. I mean, think of all the bad processes you encounter on websites and mobile apps where you can't figure out what to do, or you try and do something and it doesn't work. And within companies, there is uh, perhaps even more internal friction in the vast majority of companies. Something like, according to Gallup, something like 85% of employees are disengaged with their employer. They aren't actively engaged, which means, yeah, they're not going to be loyal. They're not really going to deliver that great customer experience. And a big reason is so much of their time and more importantly, effort is wasted. It's wasted by meetings uh, that don't get anything done. It's wasted by dealing with emails that uh, they really don't accomplish anything. Uh, bad rule, bad processes internally that waste their time. Rules, ways of getting things done that don't make sense. You know, it's it's just amazing how much time uh, is not really productive. And people realize that. And if the company is not working to cure that, then it's no wonder employees become disengaged. Well, so I think you've, you've done a fine job outlining some of the key examples of friction that we all encounter and and what can be at stake with regard to engagement. Could you maybe make this come alive for us with uh, a compelling story in which you saw sort of the, the power of friction in a great force? Well, I think the uh, maybe the best examples are ones that our audience is familiar with uh, and I'll give you two from uh, business uh, examples that dealing with customer experience and friction, you know, and also with the invisibility of friction. Uh, one is Uber. Uh, nobody thought about all the friction there was in the taxi process. I mean, taxis were pretty much unchanged for, I don't know, 50 years or so. And, you know, people just accepted that uh, they were the way they were. And occasionally you might get aggravated if it, you were, couldn't find a taxi at all on a rainy afternoon in Manhattan or something. But, most of the time, we just figured, okay, well, this is the process. This is the way it is. There's not a better way. It wasn't until Uber came along with such a smooth experience, uh, even for you know, from hailing the ride in the first place to payment at the end where there is no payment process at all. I mean, that's the easiest process when there is no process. You just get out and say goodbye. You know, this suddenly people's eyes were open and they said, whoa, wow, those taxis really weren't that great, were they? And that accounts for Uber's tremendous popularity and also of their uh, somewhat smaller competitors. Uh, they just changed this where people had not even seen it to begin with. Uh, and I think the other sort of uh, mega example is Amazon, where they have put so much effort uh, into minimizing customer effort. There's many reasons why they're successful, but that is one of the biggest ones. 
when you ask people what drives loyalty, they may give you, you know, say things like, well, boy, a really uh, outstanding experience, uh, having my expectations exceeded. Research shows that what drives customer loyalty uh, are low friction experiences, minimum customer effort. Gartner, the big research company, did some phenomenal research uh, that showed when people had a high effort customer service interaction versus a low effort, uh, and the high effort customers were 96% of customers who had a high effort experience were likely to be disloyal compared to just about a tenth of that for low effort customers. When it comes to repeat customers, 94% of low effort customers were likely to re repurchase compared to just 4% of high effort customers. You know, and uh, we can see that at Amazon. Uh, they have gone out of the way, their way to minimize effort, starting with one click ordering. Way back in 1998, they patented one click ordering that I know I thought at the time, that's kind of goofy. You can't really patent that, can you? Well, it turned out they could. Uh, and when Barnes and Noble implemented it on their site, Amazon and Barnes and Noble got in a huge legal battle. Ultimately, uh, Amazon prevailed after spending presumably millions of dollars to defend that patent. And uh, what did they accomplish with that time and trouble and expense? All they accomplished was forcing their competitors to add one tiny little click to their process. Now, you know, if you talk to the average IT person and say, well, gee, I have to click uh, that or that's, that's only three keystrokes or that's three, you know, they, they'd say, oh, hey, three keystrokes, who cares? You know, it's nothing. Uh, you know, for Amazon, it was worth uh, that huge legal battle to defend disadvantaging their competitors by a single click. Uh, and beyond Jeff Bezos, another smart guy, Steve Jobs, saw that at the same time he was launching his music store. And he didn't try and fight the patent. He didn't try and come up with some kind of a workaround. He went to Amazon and paid him a million dollars so that he could implement one-click ordering in iTunes. And we know how that worked out. So, you know, to me, and, you know, Amazon does it in so many different ways. They uh, they came up uh, years ago with frustration-free packaging. They saw that people were really frustrated by these plastic uh, uh, clamshells that you can't open with your bare hands. They're great for retail, I guess, because they're sort of hard to steal and they show the product off. But you know, you get the thing home and you've got to uh, use some kind of sharp instrument to get them open. And then the plastic is sharp. <laughs> it's like I cut myself on the plastic I've cut. <laughs> uh, it's, they're terrible for the environment. Yeah. yeah, I know. If if you don't if you don't stab yourself with the knife you're using, you stab yourself with a you know plastic shard. Uh, and Amazon said, "Well, you know, we don't need that." Uh, they came up with frustration-free packaging, just simple cardboard packages that you that can open with your bare hands. They're better for the environment, very minimal risk of injury. Uh, and the amazing thing is this: uh, not only did people like the packaging better, Pete, but there was a 73% reduction in negative feedback on products that were packaged that way. So people actually liked yeah. the products better that were packaged that way. Uh, so, you know, I mean, they have focused on this since day one. Uh, way back in 1997, Bezos was talking about frictionless shopping. And uh, one of my favorite uh, quotes is from Jeff. He says that, uh, when you reduce friction, when you make something easy, people do more of it. And that is pretty much the theme of the book. And uh, that's, it's a lesson that not everybody has learned. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing all those examples and, and it really does resonate in terms of, but in, in many, many different implications and applications of when you reduce friction, you make it easier. I mean, like podcasts have been around for, I guess I should know this, but more than 
more than 15 years. And yet, it's only the last few years that they've, quote, exploded, taken off, blown, like all these things. And in many ways, that's just because it's become easier. Like there's a podcast app natively on iPhones. There is plentiful bandwidth available from your cellular towers as opposed to Wi-Fi so that you can just, you know, listen anywhere. No problem without really stressing so much like your data limits. It's like, it's it's a, a, a tiny fraction and you, you don't need to uh, to worry about it. Whereas several years ago, you might say, oh, I've only got a, uh, one or two gigabytes a, a month. Well, well, now that's, you know, more people are having more. So, so it totally adds up that uh, there's less friction. The more people will do that thing. So let's talk about now zooming in on the workplace. How can we apply some of these principles so that we, we get more great stuff done, so that our, our teams are more effective? You know, what do you see are some of the, the top sources of friction at work and, and the best solutions for lubricating it? Well, I think often organizations that start off lean and mean and very effective, uh, where people are uh, totally engaged and uh, working really hard, you know, they tend to grow if they're successful. And uh, the bigger companies get uh, often uh, the more bound by rules and procedures and processes they become. And to some degree, there's that's necessary. If you're going to have a large organization, often you do have to have some standardization of processes. You do have to have guidelines for new people and so on. You know, it's, it's, it sort of goes with the territory and that's, that's okay. But often people, managers in particular, don't even know why they are doing things. And they say, there was once, I'm, I'm thinking it was by Bain, but I'm not sure uh, they asked people about uh, which rules they were following that were uh, either pointless or wasted their time. Uh, and so a bunch of employees in the survey nominated various uh, rules. And what they found was that half the things that people mentioned weren't even rules at all. Uh, they were simply the way things had been done, and they'd been done that way for so long that they'd somehow become codified into a rule. Uh, and these people didn't think it was a good way to do it, but they just kept on doing it because they thought that um, that was what the company wanted. Uh, I think meetings are a horrendous waste of time. Fortunately, I've been an entrepreneur for eh, probably, uh, uh, I don't know, 35 years or something. And I had a brief stint of a few years where a I built a business and uh, ended up joining a very large company that purchased that business as part of the deal. And by and large, it was a pretty good experience. I mean, they're good people and certainly not as dysfunctional as uh, many businesses. But, uh, you know, they had uh, some of the typical big company problems, including meetings. And I had a person working for me as, who's a product manager. And uh, she was a smart person. Uh, but she was not really succeeding in innovating new ideas. And we talked about it and said, hey, you know, don't really have, she said, I don't have time. And so well, why? And we looked at her schedule. Uh, she had as many as like 32 hours of meetings in a typical week, uh, which is insane because, you know, how much time uh, after that do you have left for productive work or as Cal Newport would say, deep work, uh, which is what you have to do if you want to be creative. You know, you've got to have that time set aside. And instead, it was difficult to keep up just with, you know, the flow of uh, paperwork and stuff and email and everything else uh, and the meetings. And 
you know, that is not an atypical situation. Uh, st stats vary on that, but many, many people spend uh, half or two-thirds of their time in meetings, and you simply can't be doing deep work when that's happening. Now, meetings can be very useful. If you can bring a team of people together, uh, discuss something quickly, reach a conclusion, uh, establish a course of action, uh, that's, that's very valuable. But so often, they become just sort of institutionalized, and people come and they really don't accomplish much. All of the people that attend really don't have to attend. They're there because, well, something might come up that would affect them and so on. And, you know, you could go down the, the list. But to me, the one question that can help uh, people uncover where the uh, sort of least productive, highest friction aspects of a job are, uh, are to ask a simple question of one's people. And that is, how can I make your job easier? Now, a lot of people have never heard that question or have never had a boss ask them that question because uh, they're basically used to boss saying, well, how can you get more done? <laughs> And, you know, how can I, how can I help you work harder? Uh, and, you know, that is uh, what people expect, but that is not really uh, the question. When you ask people that question, it does two things. First of all, it can help you identify uh, bottlenecks or bad processes that are wasting time uh, that you can't see, but your people can see. You know, no manager can uh, really understand what everybody that works for them is doing or having to cope with, uh, at least in most cases, unless they've done that particular job. And But when you ask the person uh, who's doing it, uh, they know where the problems are. And not only that, when you ask them that, you are showing them that you are on their side. You are not the boss saying, uh, how can you work harder and get more done? Uh, instead, you're asking how you can make their job and, by extension, their life easier. So to me, it's it's a double win. You find those friction points and you also uh, help increase the engagement of that employee because once they believe that the company cares about them and is trying to make their job easier, not just make them work harder or be more productive, uh, then they can feel that bond and be more engaged. Yes, I, I dig that. And so that's a powerful question right there in terms of, you know, how could it make your job or your life easier? And and so I, I think in the realm of, of meetings, what sorts of solutions have emerged when people approach that problem with that question? I think there are any number of approaches. Uh, first of all is to, uh, I mean, there, there have been some sort of mechanical approaches like saying, okay, uh, no meeting Mondays, for example, or uh, in one extreme case, uh, meetings only on Wednesdays where they really wanted to cut down on the number of meetings. Uh, you know, and those things can work and they can help. Uh, I think that uh, really expecting uh, each leader to manage the meetings they are responsible for and to view them from the standpoint of uh, having a big impact on the people that they invite. Uh, another sort of interesting little technique is to limit the number of people that can be uh, invited to a meeting. Yet another one would be to uh, show the sort of have a cost factor for each person. It wouldn't necessarily have to be uh, down to their salary level, but show, okay, if you're going to invite uh, uh, a senior engineer to the meeting, that is worth uh, 123 bucks an hour or something. And so that people could see the cost of the meeting that they're calling. And scheduling software is great. Uh, things like Outlook and some of the other tools that are available that let you easily uh, connect. Is, I mean, 
if you recall the old days where if you wanted to set up a meeting, you or somebody working for you would have to call around and try and find a common time and you'd get a couple people lined up and then oh, a third person can't do it then. So you've got to change the time. You know, with scheduling software, it makes that easy. The problem is it treats any time that you are not in a meeting already as available for scheduling. So blocking out time in that schedule for deep work, saying, okay, uh, you know, I'm not going to be available during these times. Assuming that you have the uh, ability to control your life that much, uh, that's another great technique for uh, ensuring that you've got the bandwidth to do good work, uh, not just go to meetings. All right. So that's great when it comes to meetings. Can you share what are some other common causes of friction at work and, and common solutions for them? Well, okay. And uh, one thing to clarify, Pete, in my book, I do not deal with the interpersonal friction. That's sort of either uh, toxic boss or the uh, passive aggressive coworker or that sort of thing. You know, I, those, are, those are real issues, but uh, those are not the kind of friction that I deal with. I mean, that would be a whole another book. And that, that book's been written too, I think. But the idea of uh, finding rules uh, that people are following that they find unproductive is a good one. Asking people, you know, if they could eliminate one rule, uh, what would that be uh, that's, you know, wasting most of their time or is most annoying to them? You know, I'll, I'll give you an example from my own experience. Again, this is with uh, that big company that I worked for for a bit. Uh, they had an expense reporting process like every large company. And uh, I would travel on business occasionally. And uh, even though I was a, a VP level person, as uh, they brought me in, I had to report even the tiniest expense if I wanted to reimburse. So if I bought a $2 coffee at the airport, uh, then if I wanted to be reimbursed for that, uh, I would have to not only put that on my expense report, but I would have to furnish a receipt for that. And this is way beyond IRS guidelines. IRS guidelines do not require that. Uh, they set some limits on which expenses require documentation, which don't. And this really was super annoying. It added a lot of time to the uh, expense submission process. I know I lost a bunch because I just didn't get a receipt or I lost the receipt or something. Uh, and I always wondered if anybody looked at that. Uh, and one time I found out that they did actually look at that I, when I stapled, uh, you know, a quarter inch of little papers to my <laughs> expense report. Uh, somebody did look at it because they kind of came back and said, oh, hey, you do not have a receipt for this uh, $3 item here. Can you, I don't know where it went. I had it when I was doing the report, but it got lost somewhere. So not only was it wasting my time, but it was wasting somebody else's time Yeah, uh, who was reviewing all those. And then to uh, cap it off, they came up with a solution to make it more uh, efficient. Uh, where there was a an electronic process that you could scan uh, these receipts, uh, take photos of them. Uh, you could then attach these uh, JPEGs or PDFs to your electronic document, and it would go into an electronic workflow. Uh, and it was all wonderful, except uh, that was very efficient for the accounting people because uh, in, you were uh, documenting it in a very clean electronic way. You were assigning account numbers that were really cryptic to the average person. Like, you know, uh, what kind of expense is this? Is this, you know, and you've got all these uh, accounts that have accounting names and you can't really figure out where it goes. So basically what they did was uh, created a process that was efficient for them, but for the employee uh, made it even more onerous and inefficient. 
And, uh, you know, and the point is there, there was not a reason for this. Uh, ultimately, I ended up uh, asking the uh, financial guy uh, when uh, after he had left the company and I had left the company, uh, I said, why, why did you guys do that? I said, that, that seems crazy. Said, well, uh, they did not trust the uh, employees not to uh, cheat on their expenses or, uh, you know, put stuff down that they didn't uh, actually spend. And, uh, you know, Pete, that brings us to the issue of trust, which I find underlies a lot of friction inside companies. You know, I know you've had Paul Zak uh, on the show, and uh, his book, Trust Factor, is really amazing. Uh, and as you know, he found that uh, high-performing organizations have high levels of trust. And uh, the converse is true, too. And obviously, if you were asking your employees to submit uh, $2 expense receipts and then denying expense reports because they forgot a $2 receipt, uh, there is not much of a trust factor there. Uh, and this is limiting the performance of these organizations. So, you know, looking for those things, uh, there's a great story in my book from GE way, way back in the Jack Welch days before the turn of the last century. Uh, and they asked that question of a, that I mentioned, how can we make your job easier to a group of union workers in manufacturing, not usually the most cooperative folks in dealing with management. And uh, one guy spoke up and said, yeah, you know, I handle sharp metal all day at my machine and I wear out a pair of work gloves every week or so. And I've got to, to get a new pair, I've got to shut my machine down, leave the building, go to another building, go to the tool crib, fill out a requisition form, find a supervisor to sign the requisition form, take it back to the tool crib, where then they will issue me the gloves and I go back to my building and my machine. And it can take an hour or two, depending on how hard it is to find a supervisor where there's a line at the tool crib. Uh, and uh, it turned out that the reason they had this rule was because they were afraid that people were going to steal gloves. So uh, the solution was, put a box of damn gloves by the guy's machine. And it turned out he did not steal all the gloves every day. Uh, and th they saved hours of time per week. Plus, uh, they established that, okay, we trust you. <laughs> you know, it's we're not making you go through this horrible procedure because we don't think you're going to steal a $2 pair, pair of gloves. You know, it's, it's crazy. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, when you look at those procedures and see how many are based on lack of trust, when you fix those, uh, not only are you saving time, but you are indicating that you trust your people. Yes, I, I, that's that's really resonating that many rules come about from lack of trust. And so underneath it all, if you have the trust in place, then you you may not need those rules. That That's great. So I, I love that your your question there on how can I make your life and job easier? Uh, I'd love to get your your view on uh, what are some other ways that we can spot friction and common means of reducing it? Well, you know, I think that uh, spotting it in the customer experience is both uh, easy and potentially a uh, trouble point. Uh, you know, we have so many metrics now from our digital tools. We can see where customers are slowing down, whether they are uh, clicking on stuff that uh, shouldn't be clicked on because it can't be clicked on. Uh, you know, uh, if they are bailing out of a process, you know, it's uh, there are uh, so many tools that we we can use that can give us some of this friction information. Uh, we can also ask them. Uh, but one thing that I've seen is even as we try and improve customer experience, 
and I call this uh, the Heisenberg effect because uh, Heisenberg says you can't measure something without changing it. And he was referring to subatomic particles. And I apologize in advance to any actual physicists who would say that's an oversimplification of his uncertainty principle. But uh, basically, uh, what I see happening is people try to measure their customer experience and end up uh, affecting it. Uh, you know, uh, net promoter score is a decent metric. It's you know, that's uh, where uh, you ask if you uh, somebody is likely to recommend uh, your company to someone else. Uh, and, you know, it's certainly better than doing nothing, but sometimes the way people try and capture that is you go to a website with the intention of getting something done. You want to place an order. You want to get some information. What's the first thing you see? Uh, a damn pop-up that is uh, asking you if you want to do a survey when you're done. Nobody clicks yes. You know, I've, I've got that on slides that I do in my speeches, and uh, I've shown uh, that pop-up or an example of that pop-up to thousands and thousands of people uh, and always ask, who actually clicks, yes, I'll do the survey. And in all of those, I probably had like two or three people raise their hands. You know, everybody else doesn't. Nobody does that. So you are annoying 100% of your customers to get a return of a fraction of a percent of them. And the fraction of a percent that answers is probably not representative. They're probably yes, exactly. already pissed off at you for something because, and they're looking for any opportunity to tell you that. So, uh, you know, I mean, and even worse, uh, these things like uh, that hotels or airlines or cruise lines send you after your experience. I mean, normally I delete those things. I, I stay in hotels a lot uh, when I'm traveling for speaking and such. And uh, every time I get you know, brief survey about your stay. And I found these surveys are never brief. Uh, there's always a million questions. But uh, I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express, which uh, enabled me to be uh, on your show today. I'm significantly more intelligent because of that. Uh, and I found that the lighting in the hotel that I stayed in was kind of strange. It was, it was cold lighting temperature, felt very industrial and uh, not warm and cozy. So I said, okay, I'm going to tell them about that. You know, maybe maybe they don't know that. And uh, so I actually opened the thing when they said, uh, tell us about your stay. And there were a few questions. Everything is on a scale of one to 10 for being honest. I mean, you know, can you really rate your, whether your front desk experience was, you know, a seven versus an eight? Uh, you know, it's, it, you're forcing people to really think about this, which is cognitive friction or cognitive effort uh, that's wasted uh, with those fine gradations. But anyway, I, I get into it and I answer the first few questions. Then I get to this thing that's like a uh, 10 by 10 matrix asking me uh, to rate all these different things in one big thing, uh, again, from a scale of 1 to 10. And it's things like the pillows, the electrical outlets. And I didn't even notice these things. I didn't want to talk about them. I tried to skip over that so I could get to an, a form field that I could just type in my comment, uh, but it wouldn't let me. I had to answer every single question to proceed with their stupid survey. Uh, and so I just bailed out of the whole thing. I mean, it was just too, uh, too much effort. And when you make customers work like that, uh, you are actually affecting their customer experience uh, negatively when maybe they did want to tell you something, but uh, you just made it too difficult for them. United Airlines, uh, I've been on 1K for five years, and uh, I have a special customer service line to dial into. Uh, it's answered immediately every time, always with a uh, competent U.S.-based representative. Uh, so it's it's a great service. 
But amazingly, even though they recognize me when I call in, uh, they, a little robot voice says, hello, Roger, because they recognize my mobile phone. Uh, and then before they connect me with a representative, uh, I have to listen to a 15-second recording uh, asking me if at the conclusion of the conversation, uh, I would like to answer a survey about the experience. Uh, and in order to say no, even though I'm uh, on my mobile phone, I've got up to my ear, I cannot use a voice command. Up to that point, I could use voice commands to ask for a representative, but I have to uh, take the phone away from my ear, open the dial pad, and click two to decline to do the survey. And the crime in this is that these are their best customers, their most loyal customers, their highest revenue customers, and they are slowing down every customer service interaction by about 15 seconds at least because of their desire to ask about the experience. Uh, you know, I was tempted to say, yes, I'll answer the experience and then say how the annoying their little message was. But uh, I suspect if I did that, that would not be an option. They would want me to rate the representative uh, on whether he or she uh, was helpful and so on. So, I mean, uh, we see this just all the time uh, and, you know, companies are not aware that even the, even as they're trying to make their service better, they're making it worse. Well, there, boy, there's so much in there. And, and I, I appreciate sort of like the broad span of examples. And it, it's sort of like, you know, who are you making things easy for? You know, are you making it easy for the employee who who processes that data? Yeah, you sure are. You know, they're able to say, cool, I've got my 10 by 10 matrix. I can see that pillows, you know, are really our problem here. So effortlessly because of, of how that survey was formatted. So I can just get right to it. But you're making it very not easy for the the end party. And so it's sort of like if we were to flip it around, the easiest possible thing they could do would be to say, hey, what do we need to know about your your experience at our hotel? Exactly. And you could say the lighting was ghostly weird and I didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you're exactly right, Pete. You know, uh, what, what I advocate is uh, maybe a very simple checkbox. If you've seen those things at airports or other kinds of facilities where with the happy face, uh, they have uh, like uh, uh, three or four emojis ranging from happy to sad with the neutral in the middle. Uh, you know, how's your experience? People can relate to that. They don't have to think about it. Uh, they can choose the happy one or the neutral one, uh, you know, almost on autopilot because they know what kind of an experience they had and then give them a big uh, empty blank space where they can say whatever they want. You know, the problem is this doesn't fit neatly in spreadsheets. Uh, it's hard to take those answers. It takes extra effort. <laughs> so th that's why uh, I think companies don't do that. They like to have that granular information of, hey, our pillows are up 10% from last year. Uh, but, you know, that isn't really helping the customer. Uh, certainly. And, you know, in a way, I guess I, I always come back to it, it doesn't really take that much financial investment to to turn that into something more usable because, you know, a temporary employee, a an intern, it could go ahead and say, pull themes out of these data and then and then tell you, hey, out of 200 responses, uh, 14 of them were about the pillows and 70 of them were about the lighting. It's like, okay, noted. That that took you some effort, but not a lot of cost for that time to to get there. And boy, if you think I too love those emojis. I love them so much I took a photo. And, and so that can give you your your quantitative stuff real quick. And then you really do need to get out of the way to provide an opportunity 
for for that feedback. And you got me thinking right now. I asked people to email me, what do you think about the show? Pete at awesomeatyourjob.com. I was like, can I make it even faster and easier? Like uh, tap a button or a link in the show notes description in your app player and then write two words. You got my wheels turning, Roger. Right. Well, you know, uh, you you said you took a photo. Um, uh, I did too, and I posted it on Facebook. And so this is what survey should be like. Uh, It was because it was like a three button, three emoji uh, set of buttons. And uh, a bunch of people immediately replied and said, well, yeah, I never uh, touch those uh, because they're outside the restroom. And uh, (laughs) I see all those people who don't wash their hands. So... (laughs) But, you know, if it's a digital thing, you probably don't have to worry about contamination. <laughs> We're really covering our bases here. <laughs> I love the thoroughness. Well, you tell me, do you have any further tips on when it comes to identifying and eliminating friction? Uh, any, any top suggestions you want to make sure to cover before we hear about some of your favorite things? Well, sure. Uh, I think the uh, there is something I, we talked about net promoter score, and I don't have a problem with net promoter score. I don't think it's the uh, sole answer to whether you're doing a great job or not, but it, you know, it's better than doing nothing for sure. Uh, there's also something called customer effort score that is designed to, uh, in the same way that uh, NPS does, measure how customers perceive their effort, and it is the perception of effort that counts. You know, uh, you can say, well, boy, uh, we've got uh, best in class uh, processes for our digital customers. Uh, you know, we've looked at the competition. They are not measuring you against your competition. They're measuring you against Amazon and Uber and others. So uh, if somebody thinks they had a high effort experience, that's what counts. Even if yours is, you know, best in your best of your breed, uh, it doesn't matter. If they thought it was high effort, it was high effort. Uh, and, you know, you do, that's that happens to be a product like Net Promoter Score is a product. You don't have to use that particular product. But measuring customer effort in some way, I think, is good or customer perception. Google does that. I had a uh, support session uh, with their uh, I need some help with Tag Manager, which I would say is a pretty high friction product if you're not highly technical. Uh, and uh, after it, uh, they did not ask me a lot of questions about the person that helped me. They asked me whether I found the experience to be effortful or not effortful. I don't recall the exact terms they used, but I thought, wow, this is really brilliant. Uh, I see so many companies uh, that after you complete an experience, they'll ask you about it uh, and they won't ask the right questions because I don't think they want the answers. I had a really awful interaction with uh, my internet service provider where I could not find online what speed I was paying for. And it turns out that that information is not available online. You have to get it from a representative, uh, which is, is bizarre to begin with. Uh, but I went through this conversation. The representative was fine. She was very helpful. And you know, it, uh, it was just their bad process. I had to come up with a, a four-digit code from an invoice and all this uh, ridiculous stuff just to get the information, <laughs> the, the bandwidth I was paying for. You know, It wasn't like I was trying to hack into the account. I just want to know what my speed was uh, because I wasn't getting it. And it turned out I was not getting it. But at the end of the process, uh, they they say, would you like to comment on this? And I I was ready to comment at that point, having wasted 20 minutes just to find out uh, my my internet speed. Uh, So instead, they did not ask me about what I thought about their company, whether I'd recommend them uh, or anything like that. They asked me uh, about the rep, was you know whether the rep was courteous and helpful, 
And uh, then they gave me uh, like a thousand characters to talk about the representative. And this is not the, the problem. They, I think that they did not want the answers to the real questions. They don't want to ask people, uh, would they recommend them? Uh, because they know that uh, typically, uh, not, not just my particular one, but in general, uh, internet service providers and cable TV companies are at the very bottom of customer satisfaction scores. Uh, and uh, so they, they don't want that data. And they ask about the rep. And, you know, if uh, you're mad and you ding the rep, well, hey, okay, that was uh, the rep's problem. <laughs> you know, it's, it's crazy. But uh, I think that uh, asking simple questions and honest questions is the way to go. And ask about effort. You know, was, was this effortful? And then give people a chance to explain why. You know, if they thought it was high effort, you say, well, gee, it doesn't seem like it's high effort. Give them a chance to explain. You may, you may find out that there is a reason that for that customer, uh, it did seem like a lot of effort. All right. Well, well, Roger, that's so much good stuff. Now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Well, uh, I will go to Richard Thaler, our Nobel Prize winner in behavioral economics. And he sort of echoes Jeff Bezos, but he actually won a Nobel Prize for this. And uh, he said, if you want to encourage some activity, make it easy. And, you know, that uh, I think that's a very powerful quote. It is repeated by behavioral scientists in various ways, but uh, he is the voice of authority on that. Well, now, could you share with us a favorite book? Uh, yeah, I would have to. I mean, there's so many. I would have to go with Influence by Robert Cialdini, uh, just because it's the basis for so much. And if if you read just that book, you will understand a lot about human behavior, and in particular, about how to change that behavior, about how to be persuasive and be influential. And could you share with us as well uh, a favorite tool so that you use to be awesome at your job? Probably Pocket would be my, my number one uh, Pocket app, which is a reader app that uh, when you see an interesting article someplace, you can save it uh, to Pocket for later consumption. Uh, and this really increases your productivity in two ways. First of all, uh, instead of being sidelined when you're in the middle of something and you see an interesting article and pausing to click through and read it, uh, which will interrupt your flow, uh, you can just save it. So you are staying uh, in the moment, but not necessarily losing track of that article. And then when you read it, uh, Pocket strips out uh, all of the unnecessary stuff, uh, all the ads, the sidebar stuff, the links and everything else. So you just see uh, a very simple article. You can switch to a web view if you prefer, but they give it to you in the bare bones uh, view as a standard. So again, you are distracted. You can consume it pretty quickly and then you can consume it at your leisure. So you know, to me, that is, that is a huge time saver. And if somebody's looking to be a little bit less distracted in 2020, that would be a good place to start. And how about a favorite habit? Well, uh, building on the pocket habit every day after breakfast, uh, I will sit with my dog on the couch and uh, he will typically uh, snuggle up and as I don't know if you discussed that with Paul Zach, but uh, when you snuggle with your pet, uh, you both see a boost in oxytocin. So uh, that's one part of the good habit. And I read articles that I've dumped in a pocket over the last day. Uh, and so I get some little productive time while I'm snuggling with my dog. So uh, it's a it's a win win. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? Yeah, you know, I think uh, the theme of my book, Friction, can be expressed in a simple sentence, uh, and that is that friction changes behavior. 
Uh, and to build on that, even a little friction makes a difference. Uh, you know, going back to Jeff Bezos and one-click ordering, uh, you know, it was worth so much to protect that one tiny little bit of effort uh, for Amazon. Uh, but people just don't realize that. Uh, you know, if, if you realize that uh, by eliminating tiny, tiny bits of effort, uh, you can be more successful, you know, that's really important. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? The easiest place to start would be rogerdooley.com. And there I've got links to my other content, my blog at Forbes, my neuromarketing blog, my podcast is there, and my social profiles are linked. So pretty good place to start. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I would try and find at least one uh, element of sort of pointless friction uh, in what you are doing, something that you can control or perhaps bring to the attention of somebody who can fix it. It can be something small. Maybe it's a, a rule that doesn't make sense. Maybe it's a process that you can see a way to improve. It's just that nobody has improved it. Uh, and even if it is not in your own organization, uh, maybe you've had a bad uh, user experience or customer experience someplace else, don't be afraid to call it out. If it's not within your company, call somebody out on social media and say, hey, uh, look at this on your website or in your mobile app or whatever the problem was. And, you know, there's some chance that it will get fixed eventually. I, I found that I've done that a lot. And Oftentimes, it does not happen very quickly, but, uh, you know, a couple months later, I go back and, hey, they fixed that. Now, was it my input? I don't know. But, uh, you know, to me, I think it's always worth trying. Roger, this has been so much fun. I, I wish you much joy and little friction in your years to come. Well, thank you, Pete. And I wish you, too, the same. And I really appreciate you having me on the show. It's been a blast. Boy, I really geek out on those things where you just sort of obsess over a little thing, but it makes a huge difference, like the story with Amazon and their one-click ordering. And well, it's huge in terms of, hey, when you multiply anything by a couple million or many million users, it's going to get big. And so that Jeff Bezos quote, when you reduce friction, when you make something easy, people do more of it. I think that is worth chewing on, meditating upon, and figuring out what is something you want to do more of and how can you make it easier? I'm just thinking right now on my home office treadmill, there is a box on top of it because I might be returning something, but I might not. And I haven't decided. But nonetheless, if I start walking or running too fast on the treadmill, the box gets jostled a little bit and falls down. So moving that box would make it easier <laughs> to have more vigorous exercise on the treadmill. But then that gets me right back to that decision. Where does that box go? Am I going to return that thing? Maybe the box can go somewhere temporarily. Until we get to the bottom of that. Anyway, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep532 or expand your episode description in your app player of choice to, to get that away. I hope you'll push subscribe and catch our next guest. It is Ryan Hawk, the learning leader himself, is sharing about how to make the transition from top performer to new manager. So I hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. 
Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.